So today I have Alex Marquez from Experian Ventures with me. Alex, before we get into it, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and Experian Ventures? Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, so I run Experian Ventures, which is the uh, corporate venture arm of Experian globally. Mm -hmm. I started the program about five years ago, and the objective was to invest in and around the financial ecosystem that's relevant to Experian's core business. I've done venture and corporate venture specifically for the last 20 years at companies like Intel Capital and USAA. And so it's kind of a natural progression to do this for Experian, which historically was not in the venture capital or venture space. Mm -hmm. They're more of an acquirer of businesses, having acquired upwards of about 100 companies over 10 years. And so this was a new venture for them, no pun intended, <laughs> to get access to earlier stage sort of innovation and disruption happening in the sort of financial world globally. So tell me a little bit more about the space in particular that you focus on, or if yeah. there are multiple, you know, give me an overview. Yeah, I think at the broad level at. for us, it's always been around access to data. Because if you think mm. at the core, a credit bureau is about collecting as much data as you can on a consumer from a financial perspective. So whether or not it's credit file information with respect mm -hmm. to existing lines of credit you have or in an alternative data that's coming in through telco, you know, mm -hmm. phone data and what have you. So at the core, that's the genesis of what we focus on. Then it comes down to use cases. Maybe it's uh, gathering data for issuing a new credit card or a mortgage product or something along those lines. So if we could back up a little bit, is the rationale behind, you know, basically buttressing out each individual customer's data file is it to differentiate yourself from your two Yeah, it's definitely, um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, definitely for sort of expanding the size of the database we have access to. And there's not mm -hmm. data that we necessarily want to go own all of it, but there is a lot of data we want access to it. And using that data to enhance the existing credit file and use cases is where we tend to differentiate. We also have a sort of a growing or burgeoning direct-to-consumer brand in the credit space. So if you think about um, Experian as a credit you know, bureau, there's also an Experian application which has over 100 million members today. That's mm -hmm. inclusive of the US, Brazil, and other countries that we're in. And so when you think about that, there is an aspect of the, the Experian brand being effectively the trusted source, if you will, because if everyone thinks about how credit affects their lives and access to financial product, or remember buying a house, buying a car, your first credit card, mm -hmm. we actually have a very unique position relative to anyone else in the market. So traditionally, uh if I were to go to my Experian credit report, you know, you would usually have your credit cards, your house payment, Correct. your car payment. Tell me a little bit more about what kinds of alternative data you guys are trying to integrate and how that helps really like create a more robust customer profile. Yeah, absolutely. So the traditional file would have your, your credit card and your other payments in there. And then we launched this product called Boost, which has been in, announced in the market some time now. Uh, seen the television commercials, I'm sure. There's other data sources which are also very positive that consumers make on a regular basis, such as their telco payment, their utility payment, their rental payment, your Netflix payment, et cetera, which is all positive data. So when you bring that data in and you model it, this is mm -hmm. actually a positive contribution to the average consumer's credit score. And so they've signed up millions of members for Boost, which effectively brings them into a new world or sphere in terms of accessing better priced risk product for them. So now that we have a North Star, so to speak, for the why behind Experian Ventures and what it's trying to do, could you go into a little bit about the types of companies that you're looking at, the types of ventures you'd be interested in? Sure, so we've invested across the spectrum. I like to say we're agnostic to a point, but not, not a very <laughs> not broad point. Yeah. And it's changed, obviously, with the, uh, the very uh, active later stage private equity investors are you know, investing earlier now. But our macro thesis has been, since we are a global firm by nature, 
We've invested uh, close to about a third of our capital, which is a close to about $250 million. Now it's all balance sheet based, the typical CBC. Mm -hmm. um, in the US, another sort of 100 million or so outside the US in regions like uh, Asia Pacific, as well as a handful of investments in the UK, Europe, and Brazil. We just closed the second deal there. And it's always around some tenant of our consumer bureau side or our business bureau, maybe our healthcare business. We have businesses in the healthcare space or um, kind of marketplaces. So anything where it touches the financial aspects of someone's lives and there's the data aspect to it where we can be a valued partner, if you will, whether or not we're bringing traditional credit bureau data or we're bringing some of our analytics to the party and we're maybe jointly going to market with the product and bringing the large customer base of FIs we deal with. I'd love it if you could demonstrate that thesis by maybe picking a portfolio company or two and really talking us through how that integrates into the bigger macro. Yeah, so I think the, the big one there was probably Finicity. So Finicity mm -hmm. was basically an account aggregation play for financial services in the US, mm -hmm. which sort of uh, became one of the stepping stones, if you will, from a data source as we launched the Boost product. So we needed a source to go out there and be able to capture all this uh, alternative data and other data that's coming in through financial institutions through the APIs, which then bit, came in and built the Boost product. So that was probably the most obvious one, especially in the US, but we've done stuff in um, Southeast Asia. Obviously in the Southeast Asian market, you have a lot more unbanked or non-traditional you know, folks coming in through markets where there's no traditional bureau in many instances. So the data sources there become off, come off the mobile phone. Um, we've invested in companies like Grab, as you can imagine, Grab's user base, which is effectively all users on mobile phone. Yeah. There's a lot of data that comes off that. So we partner with them on our analytics side. Um, we've invested in marketplaces as well, where folks come to a marketplace looking for the best available credit card or short-term loan, and they come in a lot of times with telco data, again, and there's no traditional bureau. So we've invested to enable a lot of those business models. So it varies, invest uh, to enable like the Boost product or invest to enable an entirely new market of data coming together that has not traditionally been used in decisioning. So that's really interesting to me, this idea that you guys are really trying to aim and target Experian potentially being you know utilized by all of those leapfrog customers, like for example, in Africa, who never really had right. a bank account, yeah. but you know they use M-Pesa like they do in exactly. Uganda, you yeah. know? Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about how you guys, these people don't even know what a credit card is. They exactly. don't even have a banking account or a checking account or whatever. How do you introduce them to yeah, the idea of a credit score? Yeah, it's, a tough, it's a tough road to, to hoe, to speak. Um, in markets where there is no traditional credit bureau, people don't know what a credit report is. They don't have right. a credit file but they do want access to financial services in some, some way, shape, or form, whether that's a short-term loan or they're trying to buy a car or something along those lines and want their credit card. Um, and it varies by market, again, so we don't necessarily have a bureau in every single market, but we do have the decisioning capabilities. That's just pretty consistent across markets. And so we have partnered with a lot of those telco providers, the startups in the space, and we haven't done any deals in some of those regions. But yeah, we, we come as the sort of trusted largest global source in doing decisions, decisioning and analytics around onboarding folks and exposing it to them. But the biggest challenge you have is, how do you take generations of people, unlike the US, who have no idea what the utility is of a credit score? So there is a, you know, natural education that has to take place, which I think will end up taking you know, generation, if not more. And mm -hmm. we've done this in investments in India. We have a bureau in India, but the marketplaces and how you know, cards are used there, or short-term learns are used there, very similar to the US, but um, 
you know, 1. whatever, 3 billion people. So yeah. those who, do, who have access to credit there are a very, very small portion, and right. those who have credit scores on them, even less. And so there's this very large journey that they're on, and we made an investment in a company called Bank Bazaar, mm -hmm. which runs one of the largest marketplaces for that. Mm -hmm. And they're effectively educating the consumer on, oh, by the way, this is what your credit score does for you. And so they've created a credit product and the consumers have downloaded it, and now they monitor them on a regular basis. So folks are checking on a monthly basis to say, oh, wow, I have my credit score. Mm -hmm. Now I see what I can do because I've been pre-qualified right. for a new credit product. Have you guys by chance thought about utilizing microfinance or maybe like integrating or partnering with maybe like Grameen Bank or some kind of microfinance-based uh, company that actually would be like an interesting introduction to those customers? We would partner with them, that. but we wouldn't necessarily invest because from right. a microfinance perspective as a lender, we try not to invest in companies that are lenders. But it would be an interesting validation tool, absolutely, absolutely. right? Yeah, for yeah. these people to basically be validated for a second microfinance. Yeah, anytime you can help folks out get yeah. you know, access to credit, and it happens in the agricultural space as well. Right. There's a lot of farmers Right. Whose, whose lives depend on their ability to you know, make money off their crop. Buy seed, get fertilizer. Exactly, and so yeah. they don't have access to credit. So we made an investment recently in Brazil in the mm -hmm. agricultural space where we're going to do all the analytics. We're partnering with them to do a lot of the analytics. Or did around. you partner with an ag credit company? Uh, no, we did not. So oh, these guys okay. are all uh, basically, at the end of the day, they're collecting all the data. They need someone to help them I do see. the analytics on it. I see. Decisioning around someone's income profile when they're running you know, in the agricultural business right. is very similar to if you were running a small business or if you were running yeah. you know, files on a consumer. That's interesting. So how varied is your international strategy? I mean, are you utilizing a similar strategy in Africa that you are in Southeast Asia? Or is it Yeah, it does different? vary. It varies a lot by the sources of the data and when that we have a bureau presence. I see. And so if there's a bureau presence, we think about it as core and we think about how to get access to adjacent data to mm -hmm. make that core file mm -hmm. more robust and we can make right. more decisions we can enable more product in markets where bureau does not exist then you're in this concept of alternative data and effectively building a credit bureau equivalent out of alternative data sets and mm -hmm. so the decisioning on an investment and a partnership side is very different because we don't come if we, if we don't have a bureau in the market we can't come to sort of a you know partnership deal with saying hey we have a bunch of data on the consumers already we effectively come into those markets and where we have a strength which is around the decisioning on the alternative data. So if it's coming from a telco or utility provider, we know the signals to look for in the data because we built the models globally. Mm -hmm. And that's our value add in those markets. So it does vary depending on whether or not there's a bureau or non-bureau markets. That's really interesting. So with that, let's switch back to the United States. And I want to touch on a couple of themes. So I want to talk about where you think the headwinds are for the bureau space in general. And the reason I'm asking this is because there is a lot of empowerment that happens through the data that can be collected via mobile phones. So if you're Amex, for example, you can use location data, you can use, you know, literally data from the way I use my phone to determine my credit worthiness, which to an extent within regulatory constraints. Correct? Right, right. Yeah. Within regulatory constraints. But nevertheless, it is an added source of data right. outside of the traditional credit bureau exactly. space. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so it, it's still under the construct of alternative data. The I question see. is, what can you do with the data under regulatory environments, whether GDPR or CCPA in the US, right? Um, so there is limitations in what you can and cannot do with it. And obviously, it's siloed amongst the big FIs, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And we look at that data and figure we've created products so that someone like an FI, an Amex, or something like that, so you can come in and use our Ascend product, which is basically a sandbox where you can take our data as a bureau bring your own data into it, and you can use our analytics tools 
to I go see. ahead and do your own modeling and decisioning around it. So we've enabled product like that once again, so that you can, as a sort of B2B partner of ours, go ahead and make your new sort of models and what have you, and you can go ahead and go across various different risk spectrums, across product, target, mortgage, or auto, whatever you want, new credit, new to credit, et cetera. So it allows a customer to potentially augment your data set with their own data yes. set? Yes, and when I, when I say customer, but it's a, another enterprise, a right, large right, corporation. Right. Of course. Yeah, Versus okay. the consumer, which is then the, the, other, the other angle on that is whether or not it's consumer permission data. Right. Right, because you can go and you can permission your data, which we've done um, in a very large initiative in the U.S. to do employment and income verification. And this is where you bring in payroll data and you have to permission it in because Normally, you know, it's, it resides in your you know, payroll provider, and if mm -hmm. you're going to go apply for a mortgage, you either pr print out a, an income statement, or they go in, in what they do is they um, verify and validate your income and employment status so you can qualify for a loan. Mm -hmm. um, now that the consumer can actually permission that, it's actually an easier trigger. Less friction. Less friction in it. Yeah. Yeah, and there's laws, as you know, that are being pushed that allow the consumer to be more in control of that. And so they get to decide who gets to use their data for what purposes. So if the added access, the increased access to data from your B2B customers, another enterprise, isn't necessarily a headwind, what do you see as a headwind? I think it's or largely around sort of um, education, to be, to be quite honest. Like there's, a, there's aspects of it, like folks don't still really know the, the value of their credit file or what it can do for them. In the United States? Yeah, I mean, you still markets? see that. There's, there's folks that need um, you know, more understanding of how their credit impacts their access to credit products and how it impacts. And it's largely because do you take out more credit card, do you take out fewer credit cards, do you have more lines, and all this hits to, and this is what you see in folks creating these novelties, I call them novelties, but this way to re-engineer your credit score. Like Credit Karma. Well, well, so that's more of a marketplace and lead genning into a product. I'm talking about folks that will say, okay, we'll grant you a credit card, but you pay it back and pay it back, and that looks uh, like a positive attribution. So there's aspects where folks want to learn more because they're more concerned about it, right. and that's why we have sort of a trusted position in the marketplace, if you will, as the largest credit bureau, effectively, and building products like Boost to help inform the consumer how they can positively contribute data mm -hmm. to their credit file so they actually will get that lift. And as a byproduct of that, you end up seeing better rates on credit cards or loan products. And so when I say the education aspect, it's just understanding the novelties, if you will, to how to genuinely improve your credit score. Got it. Okay, so now that we've hit on headwinds, I want I would love it if you could kind of look backwards and Tell me a little bit more about who's nipping on your heels. So specifically as a large incumbent in the space, there's got <laughs> to be some type of disruptor or some type of disruptive technology that as an incumbent, you're, you've got your eye on. Yeah, there's, and it varies by business. So we have multiple lines of business, right? So we have lines on the consumer side, we have the SMB space, we have the healthcare space, we have an automotive business, we have various lines of business. I think where you see the traditional bureaus as they exist today, they exist. What the way I describe it is that the data that bureaus historically have captured used to be the data on a consumer, like go back 10, 20 years ago. This was the plethora of data you had on a consumer mm -hmm. from a financial perspective. But with and all that the, was essentially same across all three bureaus. Correct. Okay. But, but when you think about it, like go back 10, 20, 30 years ago, right? All the file from the FIs came in. Right. And so we were effectively the de facto source for information on a consumer from a financial perspective. Right. But as everybody's now has phone and credit cards and all this stuff, the way I describe it is it used to be sort of, um, let's say, a big fish in a small lake. Now you're just sort of a smaller fish in a much larger lake of data. So the amount of data that's out there that is also indicative 
to one's credit worthiness, whether or not it's uh, daily credit card transactions or Venmo payments or what have you, it starts becoming just a larger sea of data. And mm -hmm. so at a broad level, alternative sources of data in reality are somewhat of a threat to traditional bureau. The differentiation then becomes in, well, how well is that data predictive relative to one's credit worthiness? Right. There used to be conversation around your social networks and your connections. The reality is when you look at that data, it doesn't really have any implications or impact on one's credit worthiness. It's just connectivity, but when you look at the lift, mm -hmm. there's very little to no lift that we've seen. Mm -hmm. Right. So it depends. Like I said, largely there's just a lot more data mm -hmm. in the marketplace, which means anyone who's generating data, and you can think about anyone who's generating data, whether mm -hmm. or not they're credit card companies, whether they're commerce companies, whether or not they're buy now, pay later companies, right. right? There's a lot of different sources of data that are coming and nipping at pieces of the business. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of instances, we end up becoming yet again a partner of theirs. Mm -hmm. If you think about the BMPL space, we're very close with the folks at a firm. We have partnerships with them. So, you know, it's a reality. There's always going to be a new competitive set. It's right. just like we generally find ourselves partnering with the majority of them in one way, shape or form. Okay. That's interesting. So. The thing that I want to touch on with respect to data, I'm glad that you said, I'm glad that you touched on that idea that more data isn't always better, right? Yeah. Sometimes it can very much muddy the waters. Yeah. And one example that comes to mind is uh, location-based data that was cross-referenced with payment data, yeah. basically taking zip codes and utilizing the socioeconomic status of those zip codes to determine the credit worthiness or the spend of, or the repayment ability of a customer. You know, it, I don't know if that I I don't work at the data lab, so I don't know yeah. the specifics of that. Yeah. But. So I, the reason I'm bringing up this example is, can you give me an example or two of something that prima facie, like at first glance, looks like it's going to increase the? Oh, I wish. Yeah. I, like, I'm not a, I'm not the person who creates a credit oh. product, so I don't. Yeah, I couldn't tell you from a lab okay. perspective. But like the social media data was one. From your perspective as a venture investor, like what kinds of things, you know, what kinds of alt data sources have you already determined are not you know, useful things to go after. Oh. Do you see what I'm asking? Yeah. <laughs> um, gosh, I think most of it is still positive. It's just the only thing I think about that stood out was the social media data. I was okay. very skeptical of that, but now. So um, are we talking like IG and Facebook or? Yeah, I mean, how that data is used, I honestly don't you know to that's the extent, fine, right? We have fine. data labs yeah. that runs that. Right. Um, but yeah, that's always been, but there's also, it's used not only for financial data, right? It's also used in targeting and retargeting as well on advertising. Right. right? For products. For products, right. yeah. And, but obviously, the, with the cookie deprecation issue coming out of Google next mm -hmm. year, 2023, all that creates an entirely new issue. Mm -hmm. But you see companies that are coming in and looking at being uh, you know, compliant with GDPR and the CCPA mm -hmm. requirements and doing synthetic data analysis. So you can basically strip out all. What does all. that mean? So synthetic data, what they do is they take the original data files within an institution and you, you basically strip out all the PII and then you run synthetic models on them such that the data that comes out has is indicative of the original data set, but you cannot reverse engineer and get back to the original PII source. So it's separating oh. from the fact that you could strip out PII, which if you just took out the minus PII file, you could actually reverse engineer through other data sources mm -hmm. back to the original individuals. Mm -hmm. When you do it through a synthesized manner, you can't do that anymore. 
And Got so it. there's attempts of doing that now, and that's been growing, I think, in attention mm -hmm. because of now you have to deal with more of the compliance right. the privacy law. So it's essentially a way to take a large data set, anonymize it, so to speak, right? Yeah, and it gets within uh, the error rate is you know it's minimal. So it's effectively the yeah. same data from a modeling perspective. Then you use that data and you build up panels, and then you can do the exact same thing, but there's no way to reverse engineer it back to the source. That's interesting. I've never heard about synthetic data, so I'm, I'm glad. learning it as well. Yeah, I just met with another really company cool. this morning, and we're kind yeah. of diving into how that ends up getting used for panels and yeah, modeling yeah. and what that's, have you. That's really interesting. Um, and you know, because there's privacy laws around right to be forgotten, mm -hmm. because this data is being captured, it, there's no need to be forgotten because you can never be. You yeah, know, you're attributed. covering your tracks. You can so never be speak. attributed back to the original source. Right, right. Versus okay. the other extreme, which is just protecting the data through encryption, which is entirely different. Right, right, right. Okay, so let's go back to Experian Ventures. Yes. When you look forward to 2022, tell me what's on the horizon. Uh, well, on the, uh, let's go to the obvious stuff, which is valuations are just getting insane. <laughs> Everybody's talking about valuations right. getting very insane. Exorbitant. Um, exorbitant, uh, it's difficult to digest on historical mm -hmm. metrics, but for us, we're still very active. Um, mm -hmm. Some of the two biggest initiatives for us around additional data around employment and income verification. We just made an announcement today on a partnership, not an investment, in a company called Citadel, which is doing the exact same thing of collecting- The money? Uh, the market maker Citadel? Uh, no, not oh, the market okay. maker. It's a startup that's <laughs> I was like... using an API solution to capture consumer permission data from their employers. Oh, got it. And so there's a bunch of companies in this space. We have now a partnership with them. So the broader category of gaining more access to data around income and employment verification that's a very large initiative of right, ours. You had mentioned that that's Correct. one of the ways that you can reduce friction or eliminate friction. Exactly. And, 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 and you give more data to the decisioning aspect of whether or not this person qualifies for a mortgage product or an auto loan or something like that. Right. And right. It further refines it. Uh, right. But it's also a necessary requirement when you go through the decisioning process for someone issuing the card right. or the loan. And the other part of that is, uh, so the other aspect that we're really diving in is now is enhancing and broadening the direct-to-consumer offering that we have. And when I say direct-to-consumer, we have a membership base of over 100 million people globally. And taking the consumer brand of Experian, up-leveling it as a direct-to-consumer brand of trust, mm -hmm. we can now be a trusted source for financial product. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about that journey, what does that mean? We can start help you making decisions after you've already got a card or you got a loan. You can get a better loan, a new rate on the loan. You can get a new card. And so the level is now taking from the traditional credit bureau, I check my file when needed, to actually it's a trusted source of information about me and what I can do to improve my financial situation. Mm -hmm. And so those are two big initiatives. Underneath that falls a lot of investment opportunities, you know, various aspects of improving the specific like BNPL capabilities right. or switching folks from their existing mortgage product or their, their existing auto loan product real time into an entirely new one right. or an insurance product real time. So through that relationship, you would expect to see experience sort of direct to consumer brand continue to up level. Right. So last question, how has COVID in the last year and a half affected your macro thesis? Um, so very interesting, a couple different things. One is like everybody freaked out when COVID hit and no one was doing meetings and people right. weren't gonna do investments. The reality is it's, it's helped in a couple different ways and depends on markets. What was interesting in our um, sort of our investments in India, for example, mm -hmm. a lot of the credit application process at the end of the line required a wet signature, so you had to be there in place. Mm -hmm. What COVID did is it forced the full digitization of that project. Mm -hmm. And so our investments in companies like Bank Bazaar, they were the only ones that were allowed to do KYC, virtual KYC. 
And so while the others were stuck because they had to send out people historically and they couldn't, right. they launched their video KYC solution and just kind of turned the entire business around. Right, right. Um, and then, so, so that's a perfect example of how, how COVID sort of accelerated the digital yeah. adoption, which is great. The other side of it on the venture side is it, it, it slowed down for literally a couple months, but mm -hmm. as you've seen, probably the CB Insights data and everything, mm -hmm. the last three quarters are ridiculous Insane. on record. Yeah. So for us, we've been equally as busy um, mm -hmm. trying to get more deals done, but it hasn't impacted business at all. And if you look at our experienced financial performance over the last nine months, I think it's indicative of that, right? right? So folks are still getting credit awesome. and credit product. Well, thank well, cool. you. Thank you. Thanks so much for taking the time to s sit down with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciated the time and really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, same here. Thank you. Thank you.